Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and this is the UK Money Podcast. Now on today's episode, I'm going to be talking about Evergrande. Now I'm not sure whether you would have seen this story, it started to crop up on all of the major news outlets. It, it first started to, uh, we, we st- first started to hear some whispers about this probably a month ago, uh, probably earlier than that, but I started to see it a mu- about a month ago. Um, and it's a basically a massive Chinese property development company and they're in some trouble and I think it is going to be a story that's going to get bigger and bigger so I thought it would be worth covering it today explaining exactly what's happening and how that might impact your own investments. I think it's really relevant because it does have the potential to be quite a big issue and we've seen things like this happen before the global financial crisis was obviously a big crisis in property in the US and this could potentially be something similar happening in China. So I just want to have a bit of a talk about that. I would also, I'm also going to be discussing uh, dividend investing. So uh, probably a lot of you will have, you know, understand what dividends are, what dividend investing is in kind of a broad sense. But I want to go through a little bit of a detail on, um, well, starting from the basics, I suppose, explaining what exactly it is, um, some of the strategies that people employ, some of the benefits of dividend investing, but also some of the potential risks as well. So that is going to be the show for today. So hopefully you enjoy that. I, as always, please do get in touch with me if you have questions. Um, I've not had any questions come through this week um, after a couple of really good ones last week. So uh, you can get in touch with me via the voice message, voice notes, just in the show notes down below. Um, also, please do, as well as that, obviously, you can also get in touch with me on touch with me can't speak today you can also get in touch with me on social media so i'm on all of the main social media channels um, i'm not super active on there but if you do want to get in touch with me and say hello ask me a question that is a great place to get in touch um, I've also dropped a link to my YouTube channel. Um, there's more and more videos going up there all the time. So if you want to check that out, please do subscribe to that. Um, but for now, let's talk about Evergrande. So let's start with what actually is it. So like I say, Evergrande are essentially a massive, um, a mas- massive property real estate company. Now, they are really, really big in China. They've just gone through the last couple of years, they've gone through a massive expansion. And in order to fund that expansion, they've borrowed a shitload of money. So they borrowed about 300 billion US dollars. And they have become, off the back of that, one of the biggest companies in China. They own one of the biggest um, football teams in China, Guangzhou, Guangzhou, I think think that's how you say it, Guangzhou FC, um, the owner is worth billions and billions of dollars. So they are like the, they, I guess they are like the Goldman Sachs or something of of China. Obviously, Goldman Sachs aren't property, but they are a big, massive, um, influential company in China. And the main issue that they've come across is effectively that level of debt that they've borrowed. So they borrowed $300 billion. They're needing to obviously make interest repayments on, on that debt and they're struggling. They have been unable to, well, they, they haven't been unable to, so they haven't defaulted as yet, but there are some concerns about whether they're going to be able to continue to make interest repayments. Now, the interest repayments are pretty bloody massive, so they are due to make a repayment this Thursday, um, just a couple of days, in a couple of days, and the repayment they didn't make is $84 million. So as you can imagine, for any business, um, when thing when the, when your main business isn't going as well as maybe it has been, and you need to come up with eighty four million dollars in cash, that can be a challenge. 
And the the company has actually even started just this week, started organising to actually pay some of those uh, bondholders, so pay back or pay some of that interest in property. So because they can't actually realise the cash from their assets quick enough, they are offering to hand over apartments and, and property projects in order to make those interest repayments. So on a really grand scheme of things, it's kind of like they're pawning stuff to make their interest repayments, which is obviously not a great position for anyone to be in, let alone a massive company like this. Now, a lot of these problems have stemmed from the rules that were changed in China, um, which meant, which was to try and uh, disincentivize really um, large companies like this to try and sort of limit their the amount of influence and control they have and it's meant that Evergrande had to offer a lot of their properties at really really big discounts and so that's kind of what's caused this um, this flow and effect to the, to the to their own balance sheet where they don't have as much cash available now the reason why this is a problem why do you care why do you care about some property company in China but effectively it could be, and no one obviously knows how these things play out, but it could be the start of a similar situation to what happened in 2008 in the in the US, um, which then kind of cascaded all around the world. So what's happened is that there's been a lot of um, Chinese people who have uh, purchased properties in what's called, or I know as off the plan. So if Evergrande are going to build a new apartment building with 100 apartments, they offer those uh, apartments to be bought by investors or by people who want to live in them before they actually even start the work. So often it's they're offered at a bit of a discount than what you would pay it if it was completed. But there is a risk, obviously, that you know it might take quite a long time for the apartment to complete. You could run into issues with the building company going bankrupt. Um, so a lot of these people have handed over the deposits. They've got agreements for the uh, you know to have their properties once once it's all completed. And so the first kind of potential problem that would that you'd run into here is that all of a sudden all these all these um, projects would not be going ahead anymore and if Evergrande didn't have enough money and they went bankrupt and they weren't able to pay all these people back that would be a huge number of individuals who would p- potentially lose the money that they've invested so you, you got potentially a big fallout from a, a personal financial perspective for a lot of Chinese people now that probably that's obviously awful for them it's awful for the country awful for the economy but that probably wouldn't have too much of a um i guess a, a flow and effect to the rest of the world where it potentially becomes a really big issue and where you can potentially have i hate to use this phrase given all the covid stuff but a contagion to the rest of the world is that Evergrande don't just owe money to these individuals, they owe a lot of money to a lot of other banks. Like I say, they've borrowed $300 billion. So they owe, uh, I think uh, I read in an article, they owe money to 171 different banks in China. So straight away, if they weren't able to um, repay their liabilities to those 171 banks, all of a sudden that's losses that all of those banks need to write off. And then who do they owe money to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also they own, uh, sorry, they owe money to 121 other financial firms outside of China. So this is where these sorts of issues can start to kind of snowball because if some of those other financial institutions are also running a bit close to the wire and they're expecting, I don't know, a $20 million um, payment from Evergrande over the course of a year and they're not going to get that, how does that impact their own balance sheet? And then if they're not able to 
if, if they've got a five million payment of their own, of which they need the money from Evergrande to pay, which they then don't have, does that mean they then can't meet their repayments? And so on, and so on, and so on. And of course, you get this situation then when all of a sudden credit becomes more risky, people are going to be more nervous about lending money, or banks, I should say. Banks and financial institutions are going to be more nervous about lending money, which means they up the interest rates, which means the borrowing is harder to get. And it becomes this really um, vicious cycle of less money in the system, less funding available for the projects, and less funding available just to go into the economy, which then means there's less money going back into the economy. So... um, like I say, it will be a, a remain to be seen how this plays out. I think um, you know it, it is going to be an interesting one to watch. Obviously, China is very different to the US. The government there has a lot more control over the financial system. They can make very blanket decisions um, and blanket interventions that they can't get away with in the US. But you know, I think the other the other flow on from this is that. You know, if you go back 20, 30 years, if the Chinese economy was struggling, it wouldn't have really impacted the rest of the world that much. Um, but as we all know, China has gone through an insane level of growth over the last 20, 30 years, and now is the biggest trading partner of many, many countries. So, you know, if all of a sudden China is going through a domestic crisis and there's no construction happening and and um, no no domestic work being done and the, the domestic con- economy is struggling, that means there's a lot less demand for, for them to um, be sending money back to other countries. So, you know, I'm obviously an Australian. A really big concern for Australians is the price of iron ore because that's what is used to make steel. And over the last 30 years, China has bought a lot of steel or iron ore to make steel because they've been building buildings like like nobody's ever seen before. And obviously, if that kind of stops, then just as one example of one particular mineral, that puts a lot of pressure on the Australian economy because Australia, um, the demand isn't going to be there for as much iron ore. There's therefore there can be less money going into Australia in terms of iron ore exports. That then means there's less workers need, needed to work at the, the mining companies, which then means the miners aren't earning as much money, which means the, the money they spend on their weekly shop is going to be, go down. You know, This is the kind of thing that really has the potential to, to cause big flow-on effects. Now, I'm not telling you this just to to scare you or make you panic. I think that's what we, we tend to get into this cycle of um, bad news, bad news, bad news in the media. Cryptocurrency is another one. Bitcoin's gone down quite a bit um, this week. Of course, it's mega volatile. It's it's always going up and down, so that's not news, but it is news in, in, in so much as it's, head, it's making headlines. And I think whenever any of this stuff comes up, it's just always a reminder to me that no one has any idea what is around the corner, what is going to be the next... Um, in inverted commas crisis in in the finance world, what the what the um, end result of that is going to be. So it always just comes back to the same point of making sure you're diversified, making sure you've got a long enough time frame, and then kind of forgetting about it. Because you know, as much as this is a legitimate this is a legitimate issue, it could be legitimately a very major issue over the next however long. Um, we, no one knows. No one knows. And the likelihood is is that in 10 years, we will look back on this and it won't seem like such a big deal. That's what happens with the global financial crisis, the credit crisis in 20. 20- 2008 you know at the time and for the years afterwards it was it was massive you know and it was it has been but now if we're looking back at the performance of the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100 or or whatever the it you know it's fine it's not a issue that has um 
massively impacted investments forever. And I think that is always the case. There will always be bad news. There will always be scary new figures coming out. Um, But the important thing is understanding that if you allow yourself, you will be constantly panicked and constantly worried and never able to actually sleep at night because you're worried about your investments. So, now that I've scared you about what's coming for financial markets, um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about dividend investing, right? So, we're going to start with basics on this one. I'm sure many of you will understand or already understand what uh, dividend investing is and what dividends are, but maybe there might be a couple of bits in there that, uh, or strategies in there that you haven't heard of or come across before. Um, but I'm also going to explain what the kind of potential downsides are because dividends get talked gets talked about a lot especially on social media you know quite often some of the tiktok financial advice inverted commas is about um you know passive income and living off dividends and that sort of thing so you know if you're not aware essentially all that a dividend is is your share of the profit that a company makes as a shareholder so if you own, well, that's a bad example. They don't pay dividends, Apple. Um, if you own, I don't know, American Express shares, right? Now, American Express make their money um, by charging fees every time anybody uses an American Express card. So if you buy something with an Amex, they will charge, I don't know, 1%, 0.1%, whatever the figure. And that's the revenue that they're making. They obviously then will have will have costs, right? They've got offices. They've got marketing consultants and marketing people they need to pay office space, all that sort of stuff. So they pay for all the business costs. They then um, hopefully at the end of that have a profit. Got the revenue, pay the cost, have a profit. Now, depending on the company, they may not pay a dividend. So, you know, what is often expected is that if a company makes a big level of profit, at least some of that will be paid out to shareholders in the form of a dividend. So let's say a company makes $100 million in profit, and they may say, look, let's keep 20 million of that aside or keep that back as a um, uh, for R&D, for uh, future investment, I don't know, opening a new ad campaign for American Express, whatever the case, you know, whatever they want to spend the money on. But keep some money aside to put back into the business to try and grow the business and then pay a dividend out to the shareholders. Now, the reason why you do you get that as a shareholder is because just you know keeping in mind as a shareholder you are a minority owner of the business so there's really no difference to that than if you own like a cafe you know if you own a cafe you pay some wages to your staff you pay the electricity bills you make all the money from selling your sandwiches and your coffees and stuff the difference there is the profit and then because you own the cafe you're eligible to keep that profit so this is this is no different now Every company will have a different dividend strategy. There's no kind of hard and fast rules around how much of a company's profit is paid out in dividends. And there are some really famous examples of companies that don't. So Apple is one. Now, I don't think they've ever paid one out. I have a feeling in the back of my mind they may have they may have in the last couple of years. But but generally speaking, historically speaking, Apple have retained all of the cash that they've earned. And as you can imagine, that is a shitload of money. Um, and I, I don't actually remember the figure, but it is like something like close to a trillion dollars. Is that ridiculous? I'm just going to check that because that may be ridiculous. Hold on. Okay, yeah, I've just checked. That is a bit ridiculous. Not a trillion dollars, but 250 to... Well, $200 billion though. $200 billion. So... You know, quite a way off a trillion, but not like an insane amount off. Anyway, so the idea behind that is that they have retained that cash with 
to, to give the company flexibility and control for any acquisitions or any R&D they want to do. So basically, Apple have so much money, so much cash, that the people running the company, um, Tim Cook and his mates, um, can do anything they want if they think it's a good business decision. So people who are investing into Apple shares are investing on the understanding that they're not going to make any money from getting income back from the business. They're going to make money by the shares in Apple going up and then they can then sell those shares if they want to realize some of their investment. So that is often the case, especially for, for newer companies. Um, even if they're making profit, you know, you don't want to give away... Um, give away all of your all of your cash if there may be a rocky period coming up in future years. So you want to have enough of a buffer there and a lot of companies will retain a cash buffer if they can afford to. On the flip side, there are companies that are very consistent dividend payers and often these are the really old, um, very established companies. So banks and financial institutions are one who generally speaking will pay a very consistent dividend. And in fact, sometimes companies will even pay a dividend when they haven't made a profit. So, you know, if there are companies who have a very long um, history of paying consistent dividends, they, in order to keep investors, keep shareholders happy, sometimes they will actually go into cash reserves from previous years to maintain a certain percentage of dividend. So, uh, the, really, the point of this is that just because one company pays it a dividend, number one, it doesn't mean that that is going to be similar for every company. And number two, it doesn't mean that they are, they are, a safe company to invest in. They could be, but the fact that a company pays a healthy dividend isn't necessarily always a good thing. You know, sometimes there can be companies that are paying unsustainable level of dividends because they're hoping that business picks up. But obviously, if business doesn't pick up, they could be in a situation where they've given a bunch of the money back to the shareholders and then they're in a tight spot because they don't have enough money themselves to spend on the business money that needs to be spent. So if you are looking to invest in uh, for what's known as an income bias, so this is where you invest in either specific companies or there are many managed funds that will do this. So managed funds where the investment manager will purposefully construct the portfolio based on companies that do pay good consistent dividends in order to maximize the income. Um, and so that's the, the, the first thing to be aware of is that if you're doing a fund, obviously they're doing, if you're investing in a fund, obviously they do a lot of that work for you or all that work for you. But if you're trying to do this yourself, which I generally don't recommend, but if you do, then that is something to be aware of that some time, that, that just because the companies are paying dividends doesn't mean they are reliable. And also if the dividend amount looks really high, there may be a reason why that's really high. Um, so if you see a company that is paying a 10% dividend, you might look at that and say, oh, that's bloody good. 10%. So if the share price is 10 dollars, 10 pounds, you are getting a one pound, one dollar dividend each year. That's insanely good. That's really high. It is really high, but why is it so high? There's lots of different reasons. It could be that the share price has just crashed quite significantly. So actually, the share price was thirty dollars, thirty pounds, um, and then and, and it's now gone. It's now gone down significantly. So that dividend amount as a percentage looks much higher. That's not necessarily good news. You know, if there's a really big reason why the um, share price is on the way down, even if it is paying good dividend, maybe it's not going to be paying that dividend for very long if the company's um, about to go belly up. Or it may also be that 
it's just not sustainable. So you may have a small company that is looking to get um, more investors interested in the share price and therefore they're paying a dividend which is which is just unsustainable and it's not going to be something you can rely on in, in future years. So it's just it is just something to be aware of. Now one of the like I say, dividend investing is a is a very common strategy. And this is to me it's an interesting one because there's lots of different reasons why you would invest this way. But you know, one reason in the UK, for example, is the dividend allowance. So we have a, a dividend allowance um, which allows you to receive, it's, it's it's different to your personal allowance, it's different to your um, you know personal savings allowance, things like that. So you get a separate tax-free allowance for dividends that you receive on shares or share-based investment funds. And currently that is £2,000. So you can receive £2,000 in dividends and not pay any tax on them. So this is one really good example where they start, you know, uh, I'm actually just doing a video on this uh, at the moment on my YouTube channel. So jump on there and check this one out because I'm talking about mainly the differences between index investing and active investing. And YouTubers and podcasters and social media finance people are always saying how amazing index investing is and like it's the best thing ever and Vanguard's like all hail Vanguard, we love you, blah, blah, blah. Everyone is really, really obsessed with Vanguard. And Vanguard are good, don't get me wrong, they're a good company. They offer really nice range of index funds. They're very, very cheap. Um, they 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 are good. I like them. But they aren't the only way to invest and it always comes down to matching what you're looking for in investment Man, in, looking for in an investment portfolio to the investment manager. And this is a really good example where you, if you want to be as tax efficient as possible, sometimes it is worth looking to maximize the um, level of income you're getting from dividends rather than capital gains. It could also be maybe you have um, loads of capital gains elsewhere that you're going to need to start realizing and you therefore you don't want to add to that problem by having more investments that increase your capital gains. So um, I guess or I guess my point is really is that dividend investing is one strategy that could potentially be good for you, but it's just about understanding the benefits of it and the downsides. So the downsides I spoke about, one of them is that, um, you know, sometimes the dividends aren't necessarily too consistent. The other downside is that for, broadly speaking, as a general blanket rule, if you're investing in investments that are more heavily weighted towards income, dividends, then you the level of capital growth is probably going to be a bit less. And the reason for that is because of what I was talking about before, where most of the time, if you're looking for companies that pay solid, consistent dividends, that is going to be companies that are very mature. So, you know, big banks, um, utility providers, energy companies, things like that, where there's normally large barriers to entry. They are very, well, I say very, relatively stable companies that can pay, that have consistency in the amount of income that they earn, the amount of profit they generate, and therefore they can have consistency in their in their dividend strategy. The downside with that is because they are such mature companies, the, the potential capital growth is just naturally going to be less. So, you know, if you look at a company like, um, I don't know, Deliveroo or Uber or you know a, a kind of newer tech company, TikTok, the potential trajectory of those companies could be pretty massive. I mean, they're even quite 
they're not even new new companies these days but growth companies are ones where they are new in their cycle and therefore the potential upside in the capital side of things is high also the potential downside you could also lose a lot more money with them but if you're looking for growth companies those are the kinds of companies you would consider bank banking stocks aren't going to double in value in a year they're just not, unless they've just already gone through a massive crash. You're just not going to get the same level of capital growth. You probably will get some. The likelihood is you will get some, but the bias is going to be on the consistent income that you're receiving. Now, there is a strategy um, that I, I've heard, again, on social media come up every now and then. I just wanted to touch on that briefly, and that is what's known as dividend stripping. And dividend stripping is where you, let's say... Um, uh, let's say, who did I use before? American Express. Let's say American Express have um, announced their dividend or you know they have the date on which they're going to announce the dividend. Often what people will do is invest in American Express before that point, knowing or understanding that pretty soon American Express is going to announce what the dividend is. We'll hang around as shareholders until that dividend gets paid and then dump our shares. So the idea would be, you know, you hold, now you can't just do that, you know, you can't buy the shares the day before the dividend is paid and sell them the day after. You can't do that. There's what's known as an ex-dividend date. So effectively when they announce the um, the dividend, when it's going to be paid, the amount, the uh, anyone who held the shares pr um, prior to that date is eligible if they continue to hold them. But anyone who... Um, who buys them after that point is not. So effectively, what tends to happen, so you will end up holding those shares for, if you wanted to do dividend stripping, you would hold those shares for a couple of months, three months, however long you need to. Um, you'd pick up the 3%, 4%, um, and then sell the shares, hopefully for a similar price to what you bought them for, for. And if you could do that three or four times a year with different companies, you know, maybe you could pick up 8 12%, which sounds really good, sounds really easy the problem you have is is two things number one you have no control over what the capital value of those shares is going to do in that mean in that period so you know you may buy into american express with the expectation you're going to get a three percent dividend but if then the shares fall by nine percent you're still kind of fucked you're still down on that particular investment so that's the first potential issue um and the second one is that generally speaking the market will adjust the prices based on how close it is to the ex-dividend date. So obviously there's loads of different things that impact a share price, but one of them is the dividend. So if, if the closer a share gets to that ex-dividend date, um, it, the kind of more priced in that dividend will be. And then as soon as you go ex-dividend, often what you do see is a little bit of a drop in the share price because it's an understanding that anybody who buys the shares from that point on aren't going to be eligible for that dividend payment. So that is the episode for today. I hope you found that useful. As always, always comes back to understanding what you're, what you're investing for, what your long-term plan is, what you're trying to achieve. And then number one, matching your investment strategy to that. So whether that's index investing, whether that's income investing, whether that's value investing, however, whatever is going to be the right thing or the best thing that is the most likely to help you achieve your objectives, that's, that's the way to go. And then once you have that in place, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the news. Even if it does sound potentially quite hairy, like what we've talked about with Evergrande, it's all about the long term. It's all about sticking to your plan as long as your objectives haven't changed. Thanks very much for tuning in, guys, as always, and I look forward to chatting to you next week.